Crow Flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Jason Mauk, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, don't drag the mal. Make a O. It's mock. Mock. Oh. Yeah. Mock. Yeah. You know, it's Ding. funny because I don't speak to you very often, but yet I see your stuff all the time online. And so you get a phrase in your in your mind, like the way a character's name in a book should sound. And I, mm-hmm. I never hear you pronounce your own name. And so you just create this like I, I'm sure I mispronounce basically everybody's name on Twitter. <laughs> uh, yours is easy. So it's just as the crow flies, right? Yeah. So. What in the hell, man? You're a farmer and you are sitting indoors right now. Shouldn't you be hammered down, planting, going all all out? We're pretty much done. At least we were until this frost. Um, on the way in, I was trying to see the damage, and I think it's going to be a little scattered. But, yeah, I mean, if this uh, – I don't know if you're into weather as much as I am, but this was a pretty historic uh, cold snap uh, as far as the region. And uh, a lot of these people that got after – these crops really early are going to see a lot of damage. What kind of damage does frost do to a plant? I mean, I know I went out and covered my tomato plants up last night, but I don't really know why. Yeah, so it just uh, it just makes it have basically a massive heart attack on the cellular level, and it all depends on its uh, growth stage. Um, you know, with, with wheat, once it gets close to flowering, it's very sensitive. Beans, uh, cotyledon opens up. Corn's growing point, which is like V4. So corn is... Uh, and you can take a freeze, it just burns off because the growing point's underground. But it all depends on the plant size. So if this had happened, say, 10 days from now, it'd be massive. Like, everyone would replant everything. But we're just a few days from an apocalypse. But there's going to be a lot of replanting. Really? I mean, I yeah. I had no idea. This is, I mean, this is the consequence of Every time. all coronavirus <laughs> all the time is because you forget, like, life has moved on and, and nothing is static. Just because the world doesn't seem to be moving doesn't mean it's not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, this spring was completely different than last year. Last year, we didn't turn a wheel till June 4th. And this year, ideal conditions, everything was went in the ground well across the whole region which is probably why you saw commodities tank even harder. You know, we cranked the corn in the ground early and you really got this response of these acres going in. What were the signals to you that you could get in earlier than usual now? It's just as simple as getting out of your truck and the shovel and seeing how wet it was. I mean, we just, we just have not received the heavy rains. You know, last year we probably had 10 or 12 inches of, of rainfall in, in April and May. Our water table was right to the surface and, everyone was getting stuck everywhere and we've gotten maybe one eighth of precipitation in the last couple months. So everybody's life, you know, runs on gambles and chances and you don't know what's going to happen, but there's got to be something to being a farmer where you walk out in the morning, a couple of you know days or weeks after you're done planning and you like have that pit in your stomach that you maybe made a mistake. What, what goes on in your mind is, as you wake up in the morning knowing there could have been a bad frost um, I don't know. It just, it just is what it is. It's everything, you know, I got this Pareto thing behind me. Everything's just a percentage thing to me. So it's not going to be like, everything's bad, but you know, you're, as you go across the land, you got black bottoms. It'll be a little bit colder and you just know you got to go out and scout and figure it out. But we're still in a great position as far as our crop yields and our stands where we're at. But 
you just got to take everything as uh, I made the decision that day. And as a farmer, all you can do is put the seed in the ground in fit conditions and uh, hope it works out. I mean, there are no guarantees in this business whatsoever. So you are always doing something weird with your fields. You're always like pushing the envelope. What are you doing this year? What did you plant? What's uh, what are you looking for? Man, we are doing all kinds of things. And this dry spell has allowed me to put it all in. And I'm super excited. So, you know, four or five years ago, I started on this wheat soybean relay and we scaled that up. We scaled at times about five this year. What does that mean? Fields. you got to slow this way down, man. What does what that okay, mean? Okay. So uh, wheat and soybeans is we plant really wide wheat in 60 inch rows. And then we plant soybeans in between it and they grow together for about 80 days. And we use the wheat for kind of this uh, root exude sugars in the system, feed to biology, wheat control thing. And, and through trial and error, kind of where we're at. And, and it looked really good. And then we started messing with corn and soybeans where we grow them together. And now we're starting to use cover crops like rye. We, we have a community garden where we, we grow uh, rye real tall and we're going to push it down and we're planting pumpkins between sweet corn. We just picked up an organic farm. Uh, so we did all the, uh, we've got it all ready to go. We're going to put a cover crop in there and we're going to have a chicken pop and chicken pot. So we're going to have chicken tractors, which are these mobile chicken coops that manage the vegetation. And they're going in an organic sense, instead of relying on tillage, we want to use animals to control the vegetation and the, and the fertility. I could go on and on and on. We have, well, I mean, it seems like you're opti- you're not optimizing for efficiency necessarily here. It sounds like you're doing something different. Like you're not, I mean, a lot of corn and soybean farmers in the Midwest, they are going hammer down to try and get as high a yield in soybeans as they possibly can. It doesn't sound like that is what you are trying to do. You're not hammering down in that same way. Well, let's put it this way, Vance. Okay, 97 million acres of corn. There's probably going to be some people that flip-flop around. I know locally they did. So let's say we're at 92 million. There might be 75 million acres of corn that are less profitable together, 75 million acres than one acre of sweet corn. You know why? No, why? Because every one of those 75 million acres lose money. How do you, how, what do you mean they lose money? These corn, I mean, like, okay, it might average 220, 220 bushels an acre, but how much is a bushel of corn worth? Yeah, not, not very much right 282. now. 282. So yeah. let's say they lose. You know, you can you can have piles and piles and trains and trains and trains and piles and piles if there's no animals to eat it and ethanol goes down. And I mean, the reality we live in today is we like I like I said earlier, we had a wreck on the interstate. There are no exits and we're just um, we're sitting here. So um, I'm not focused so much on um productivity on these projects as I am learning and then getting better the next year, see what works and um, come up with new ideas. I think, I think farmers need customers. That's, that's the top of the list customers. What does that mean? Brand. When you say farmers need customers, I mean, they, they have them grain elevators. They go in there, they, they take a price and then they weigh their, their thing and dump their soybeans. That's their customer, right? Yeah, but it's it's uh, it's so connected that it's disconnected. I mean, we, we became so good at our craft that uh, we've 
we've just completely burned those bridges between us and the customer. And now we do this thing called advocating, but, you know, I think we're getting so far removed that we need this, uh, you know, million dollar planner to get the exact down pressure in this exact soil to, to, to rate, to go to gain five or 10 bushels. But are we eating, do you sit down and eat GMO, uh, number two corn? Like, do you pour milk on it and go, mm, this is good? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't. But w- would you eat sweet corn? Would you eat, would you, would you, uh, you know, popcorn? Would you, uh, you know, I think, I don't know. I, I'm not, I know I'm going on and on here, but I'm not looking for like uh, an answer for everyone. I'm just looking for an answer for our farm. I, I, I had a guy talk at the field day last year, said, feed your family. Don't worry about feeding the world. I mean, I, there's a humility to that that is uh, is probably really healthy right now. Like, And I talked about this with uh, Rob Fraley when he came on, the former chief technology officer of Monsanto. I really had, had um, come very awkwardly to Monsanto where I was like, ah, they're, they're bad, they're evil. And then once I got in there, I was like, hey, wait a second. We are feeding a lot of people. I like efficiency. I really like this thing hammered down. But then you see a situation like this and you realize, hey, wait a second. Uh, it can get too big or too efficient or too optimized for one thing, not imagining that everything could change really, really fast. And mm-hmm. I, I really was humbled by that. So I, I take what you're saying about, like, I want to feed my family. That's a legit way to look at the world. Yeah. And it's not so much as it's not so much about the efficiency. You know, my grandpa always said, if you lose your efficiency, you lose your ass. So there is importance to that. But it's more of what we were talking about earlier, how when you start subsidizing, you know, when you see it in the hospitals and the universities and now commodities, we've we've robbed acres from all these diverse crops and funneled that into corn and beans. And we've become this cookie cutter society where we make this piece of equipment to do this. And, and all these has risen and it's, it's really screwed up the true supply and demand of what we should be producing by all these rules and regulations and, and safety nets and all this stuff. So, you know, I would argue that we can take all this technology and forethought and move it to different sectors and, and not, you know, not take a step back. Uh, but it's good to kind of have a checks and balances and kind of maybe lay off the gas pedal on, on helping people out. It's not going to be good to just, you know, print money, give it all to the farmers and say, Hey, grow some more corn next year. And, you know, maybe we need to, look at growing some different stuff and changing some of these, uh, you know, diverse logistical channels a little bit. Who are your customers? Who, who buys from you? So from a corn and soybean standpoint, all of our corn goes to a feed mill. So we grow, uh, grow pigs for Tyson. Uh, there's a, uh, feed mill about three miles north of my house that I'm on a board of directors for. And we feed about, we were feeding about a quarter million pigs there. There's no railroad tracks that goes through this, this grain elevator, which is very rare in our area. Usually, you know, where we take our beans, it goes on a rail. So everything is vertically integrated going into livestock feed there. Now, since, uh, we've had a lot of competition in that space, 
there's been feed mills that have went and been uh, built in the last three or five years. So we've lost the, a number of pigs that we've uh, fed, but we've uh, created this new product where we're uh, feeding uh, show pigs. Uh, there's a lot more uh, margin in that. So uh, a company called Linder Feeds we supply for in a bagged variety. So we're bagging a lot. So a lot of the corn that we produce is either going in a confined feeding operation, but now a lot of it's going in a 50-pound bag for, you know, little Margaret to win the county fair. So that actually is specialized then. I mean, just, just that, yep. that aspect of it is not doing direct commodity um, selling. Yep, it is. It is nice. And we enjoy one of the highest bases in the whole corn belt in this area. Uh, we've got tons of livestock uh, just north and west of us in eastern Indiana, northwest Ohio. And, uh, you know, like this show pig thing is uh, kind of a big deal around here. You know, I've thought about you quite a bit during the coronavirus, because one of the things that I, I realized when I met you in person is that you think very differently than other people. And it's not that you don't care what other people think, it's that you don't notice it. And I think that there's something to be said for that uh, in being swept up in this in this time that we're in right now with coronavirus. Like, how is it that you keep yourself free from taking one narrative and just accepting it? Because I think we're all really vulnerable to that, but you seem to be slippery man you don't you don't get stuck in one train i am honestly i'm very fortunate um you know the backstory is both my sides of my family both farmed and my uh, grandfather was ultra conservative so we're just uh, we're just not bound we're not a leveraged operation and something happened to me when i lost my father in 2010 i talked about the emotional side uh, but I had a landscape business and I was kind of leveraged. I had a house and I, I didn't have a wife and kids yet, but I had several notes with equipment and all this stuff. And they basically, my family asked me, hey, come to the farm. And I'm like, well, shit, I got a half million dollar landscape business. I'm making good money, but I got all these notes. So I was kind of growing and I kind of got just uh stuck with this debt. So I had to just be a workaholic for about two years and kept that going while I farmed. And at that point, I did not ever want to be in a position where I was married to anything. So that's why I wrote this on the board. This Pareto principle is take the, take the, uh, get the joke and move on. So I've been fascinated. I had this goal a couple years ago to have 10 entities that contribute over $10,000. Uh, so I am a serial entrepreneur on a small scale. So I really like adversity somewhat because it allows you to not be, if I had an operation where I had this balance sheet full of debt, then I would be freaking out because I've, I'm married to it. But if you can use old equipment that's paid for and not have high cash rent, and then you can change around and and be more an observer, a listener, than fighting to continue on. Does that make much sense? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, if you're if you have distance from needing to make decisions right now, then uh, then you're able to have a wider perspective on on what you're looking at and what you think is important. It, it allows you to recalibrate. Yep. And this whole Twitter thing that I started three or four years ago is also added value and to me being an experimenter. 
and I have had no more joy than seeing all these people on Twitter start to do these different things and tag me and they're doing it. And, and now I feel like I have this bandwidth. Okay. Now that this is working that we're doing, we're going to do this and then we're going to share that. And, you know, part of that formulation is, um, you know, I'm going to have a bigger, better stage to talk about it on. And there's value in that. You know, uh, there's a term that Kate Crosby came up with. I think, you know, Kate, she uh, she calls it the whale pod, which is the ability that we now have with social media and podcasts and, and Twitter that you can have a group of friends that are dispersed across a vast space and you can mm-hmm. communicate. What are you seeing where you're at? What are you seeing where you're at? You're all working together, but you're all your own whale uh, somewhere out in the ocean. And I, it, to me, that's what it seems like you've done with Twitter is you've created yeah. a really diverse whale pod all over the place. And one thing I love, I, t- I, I called Jared McDaniel like six weeks ago and I was talking about this meat crisis, you know, and then I wasn't on Twitter cause I was working and I seen that he took his studio and he's selling meat out of it. And I don't know if I had anything to do with that or not, but I've had a lot of these cricket conversations with especially people close of like, we need, you need to get a customer. You need to get out of your comfort zone. And a lot of people are starting to think differently that, you know what, Um, I can sit here and bitch about the way things are or I can tomorrow wake up and and make a first step towards this, you know. That's exactly right. And that's what a whale pod ends up telling you to do because you see like all my other friends are getting stuff done, right? Like the guy from strange donut was out there delivering donuts. The ring brothers are, are killing a, a steer, having it butchered and, and getting meat out to their friends. So you look at people and you say, Hey, if they're getting stuff done, I want to get stuff done too. And I think one of the best parts about social media is people will show up and give you actual feedback. Not like, Hey, you're an idiot. Hey, stop doing that. Or I disagree with your opinion, but Hey, this is mm-hmm. a way that I tried it and I got better. That's what I love about it. Like, the podcast has yes. opened my network up to people make, helping me get better on a, on a scale that's hard to even comprehend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so much more personal. You just get, I, I think there's like a 10% of people that just completely shut out this stupid Fox news, talking point, CNN. Like, I don't need to hear this shit. If I want to hear this shit, I'll turn on the TV. I've just completely shut off the news. Let's talk about what's actually freaking happening. What's relevant in my world? How can I actually mold it and change it and contort it into my future being what I needs to be, not sitting back acting like I'm not in control of, of my own world. Yeah, it's one I, thing. It's an it what you need is enough information about the outside world to be changing behaviors that help you succeed in the future, right? If you're listening to all these like mainstream news. It's, it's the reason that I started this podcast. You get a normie mindset. You get the middle of the pack. You are not going to have ideas that allow you to think outside of the box and to do things differently. So I want to be away from the normie ideas. Yeah. You know, when I was, uh, when I was uh, probably 16 or 18, there was this, uh, 
a little thing at a, a local restaurant, and this is just an old jank restaurant that hadn't been remodeled since the 60s, but it said, Grandpa says consider the source. And I used to just look at that. And but more recently, in all of this, I mean, you really saw it in the last election, but really in the last two or three months, you see anything on your Google, you know, your stories when you look at your phone. And it is so skewed. Everything is so skewed. You have, I don't know if it's right or left, but one side is just rooting for this thing to just bury everything down to the ground. Another one saying it's not a big deal. You know, the stock market's going to go up. You know, put your money back here. And everything is so skewed anymore that I really don't believe anything. There's hardly anything with authenticity than other than just me and you talking. You know, it's, I just, I just don't look for the news or anything on my phone as real other than, you know, whether it's the social media platforms where we're showing actually what's going on in my field. I don't want to hear this polished bullshit anymore. Okay. So when you open up your phone in the morning, the first time you're drinking your coffee or whatever, what is the first thing you look up on your phone? I want to look, yeah, I don't look at Twitter a lot, but I, I want to see what other farmers are doing. I, I, you know, I, I get thrown promoted things, but I do not spend any time. Now, if I'm, you know, planting and I've got time, then I'll read a couple articles just to, and it's always this feeling of uh, as I'm reading it, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I just want to see what material is out there, but you can just blatantly see uh, how they're skewing everything. I don't know. So how has uh, coronavirus impacted your family? You guys are, uh, you, you got still working and still school or what? Honestly, I love it. Um, I don't love the, that, you know, people are getting sick, but uh, the family time is amazing. Uh, my wife needs a break. Uh, she teaches and, and people think that she's off work, but she's on Zoom all the time. She still has to meet with parents, uh, but our kids absolutely love it. Um, they're spending time outside. We just got a puppy. Um, life, they're going to remember these days as probably the best days of their life. And that makes me happy. I mean, for the for the people that are sheltered from the chaos of the economy of all this, it really is a, a special time, right? Like, never before have we been like, all right, everybody has to focus on themselves and their home and really – like clean up your room. <laughs> you're you're going to be in the room that you're living in and that's where you're at. So for me and my wife, it's been a good experience. I mean, I got to spend more than two months with my pregnant wife before we have a baby. Like it's a, it's a, it's a great preparation time. Yep. Think of all the, like the conversations you've had that you probably wouldn't ever got to that point before oh, you were busy. Yeah. 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 It's, it's been great. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad we don't live, you know, in an urban area or something like that because we can just, you know, get on a gator and go a different direction. It would be pretty bad if I lived in New York City. I couldn't imagine that. Yeah. And I think so. I've had some people on Twitter give me a really hard time about this, but I believe that there are going to be people that lived in really urban environments that are going to try and move out to, at a minimum, the suburbs, if not trying to get out to rural America. And people show up on my Twitter feed. Apparently, it makes them mad that I that I think this. They think it's just complete rubbish. But if you've been living in a 500-square-foot apartment that looks out on another brick wall, you don't 
you're not going to stay there. If you've been locked up there for two months, you're not going to suddenly feel like that's home and that's what you want to do. You're going to try and stretch and get free. Maybe not everybody, but a lot more. I think you're touching on where all the opportunity is in ag and where all the pressure is right there. And that's been happening for five or 10 years. When Amazon Prime really started to get the subscription base, people are coming to the country and they don't want to smell pig shit or they don't want to be slowed down by vehicle and they want shit on their doorstep when they need it right away. And that's putting pressure. And it's also giving tons of opportunity for farmers to connect with people and give them what they need. But it is going to change a lot of things. And I think that is going to ramp up and speed up in the next few years at a crazy pace. Well, I think you're dead on with the being able to have farms that deliver directly to consumers. And people scoff at this. And it won't be for everybody. Most people will still keep going to the grocery store. But the number of people – so one-third of all Americans live in t- uh, towns of 10,000 people or less. And if you are living around a city, you think, uh, or like a little town of 10,000 or 5,000 people, those people want, they don't, they don't necessarily know a farmer. They didn't necessarily know how to fill up their freezer full of beef this, this, uh, spring. But if somebody showed up and was their friend and connected with them and then came around and said, I have a steer to sell you for four grand, I bet you could sell it for four grand. And now everybody's happy. Guy's happy to pay way more than market price for the beef. And and you've just made a nice profit. Exactly. And you touched on something uh, that is really going to be relevant that people are really opening their eyes on is convenience. There's a lot of businesses that have changed their business practices. And, you know, my wife makes this comment all the time is I kind of love some of these agreements that these people are, you know, you, you go, we don't eat out at a restaurant, but if you can, we go all these places and pull in and they just bring our shit out. And when you look at like freezer beef, you know, a lot of people don't want uh, a thousand pounds of frozen meat in their deep freezer. We've been doing that for five or 10 years and our kids will unplug the uh, deep freezer to charge up their uh, little plastic mobile. And it's came undone a couple times and it's been bad. Uh, so that's one thing me and Jonathan are, are working on is is packaging this this freezer beef down to where a subscription uh, to where you'll be getting it, you know, every two weeks or something like that. Oh, where you then, don't have to and, hold on to that much. And you have to remember that uh, like all the options. One of the things I've noticed is that people that are in the country, they they think like, oh, somebody wants to get a quarter or a half of beef. Well, a a regular person has no idea how much space is that going to be in my freezer. And you can be like, well, it's going to be about uh, 15 cubic feet. Well, they don't know what a 15 cubic feet are, (laughs) right? And then if you say, well, how do you want this cut up? They're like, I don't know. There are burgers, steaks, and the other things that my mom used to make, right? They don't know what chops are, flank steak, none of that stuff. But if it's made easy for them to order as though they were ordering off of a menu, They'll do it, man, they'll, and they'll pay you top dollar for it. And that's one thing that me and my wife have really found out as we, you know, when we were single, we'd just go out to eat. We <laughs> didn't even think about it. But there's so much waste when we go to the grocery store and spend two or $300 of shit we don't eat. You know, the strawberries go bad. This goes bad. We didn't use all this. You, If you get, if you want to cook for something and, and have a recipe, that one dish might cost you $38 because all that shit you had to buy. There's there's so much efficiency on these 
uh, meals that come to your house and the proportions and all that stuff. And people are starting to see that, hey, it's so much easier to have a schedule, say, you know, we're going to use Blue Apron. That's kind of went down. But there's so many of these subscription things, you know, Monday through Thursday, and then we'll go out to eat. And I think we're going to see this in the meat market to where people are going to really want, you know, a T-bone that's vacked. And they can and they can put it in their fridge and they can sit there for five days and you know wet age and they open it up and they they enjoy it oh, and they my don't huge, my get to idea, the bottom of their freezer and it's junk. My you know, idea on later. this free on the on the packaging the beef is put it in sous vide uh, dry vacked um, things so that way you can take it out of your fridge and drop it in your sous vide and it'll cook right there. If you could do that. People would eat beef so much more or any meat that you could do it because then there's no you don't even have to get your hands messy, but you're having local beef or pork. People would love it. Yeah, I don't even know what what word did you use there? Sous vide. Oh, this is I've been telling everybody about this. So sous vide means under vacuum and it's a style of cooking where you put um, like meat in a water bath that's like 135 degrees for a burger, let's say. Because what Uh happens is you put that that burger in a plastic and you suck out all the air. And when you put it into that water bath circulating at 135 degrees, it only the entire burger is medium rare. So then you leave it in there for 45 minutes to four hours. It doesn't matter. The longer you leave it in, the softer it'll be. And then you take it out and you go throw it on the grill to get that char. And now Uh you have a perfectly Uh cooked medium rare burger. Okay. And you can do that with steak. Sous vide. Is that what those ribs were? (laughs) Uh, yeah okay yeah now it's coming back and so so like all you would need is to be able to reach into your fridge and have because right now if i want to do sous vide i've got to buy something from the butcher from the grocer take it out of the package put it into my plastic suck out all the air but if that was already done for me that convenience factor and having it be local would be huge man i'm telling you Mm -hmm. million dollar idea right there okay let's do it So, um, are you selling uh, more food directly to to customers right now? Are you in that business? Well, we've got a lot of crops growing that we're going to do this summer. Um, we're trying to close on this meat deal, and uh, we've got tons of cold storage upcoming that we can store this local vegetables and the meat. And we want to create this. Uh, so basically the idea is instead of the, the hang up now, you take an animal to one of these regional processing facilities. Now they're six months to a year behind. They charge us 60 to 70 cents. Now it's 80 or 90 cents to process that beef into the, the paper packages. For people that don't know, he's talking about like if, in order to if you showed up with a live cow and then you had to get it killed and then get it butchered, slaughtered. Um, mm-hmm. the, the right now, if you went to most lockers in the U.S., it'd be October or maybe even January before they're able to open up and and kill local animals. And with the large packing plants being down, that means that there's or or reduced efficiency, fifty percent or something like that. It yeah. means that you're it's it's struggling to keep up with demand. Yeah, and it's hard for them to keep their same labor force. It's hard to everyone. So what we're going to do is have these. Small and we might actually purchase one of these kill plants, but just kill the animal and put it on a on a, a pallet, and then we bring back that to our facility and we vac it. We we cut it up, we put it in a nice package, and then we put people on subscription. But the 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 difference we want to do is we want to utilize the local farmer and pay him a fair market price, and then have him 
be uh, a part of the uh, selling process. So we'll say that, let's say it's David Mock, my uncle's subscription uh, freezer beef is in Gaston, Indiana. Come pick up my cow. Instead of you buying the cow and it sits in your freezer for a year, you're buying a new cow every week and we're, we're giving it to everyone. And then they say that my cow's here and they get a percentage of that sale. We want to create that in all these small towns that don't have that meat option. A lot of these small towns just have a DG and you have bologna and some old packaged meat. Uh, it's kind of a food desert for vegetables and fresh meat. Man, I mean, this sounds like something people would want, you know, like, and it benefits everybody. Yeah. yeah. And then we want to integrate uh, just real simple vegetables like freezer sweet corn. Have you had fresh grandma's freezer sweet corn where they blanch it, cut it, put it in a Ziploc bag and you throw it in there with a stick of butter? No, I don't think so. Oh, it's, it's great. So why not grow a bunch of sweet corn and do that and, and throw that in with the deal? So we, we picked up a, uh, a lot that's right on the busiest highway in East Central Indiana. And I planted sweet corn in ultra-wide rows in between rye. And we're going to have sweet corn and then we're going to have pumpkins growing in between the sweet corn. And then the customers will come out and park and they'll pick their own sweet corn and they'll see the pumpkins growing. So we'll sell them sweet corn and then pumpkins later with mums and all that stuff. And then we'll have our meat truck there in the parking lot. So you can roll in and get, you know, two dozen ears of sweet corn and say 10 T-bones from a local farmer that's backed that you can throw on your grill. And that's an amazing summer weekend. You just need a little beer, right? Yeah, that sounds like a great plan. Yeah. The challenge then is labor. You got a bunch of kids around that need some need some work to do? <laughs> We've got interns, and that's been a great thing about doing what we're doing. The universities of, you know, a lot of these young kids are, are – have we've had tons of people that want to do their interns with us so we've got three interns now we may get a few more and these universities the first year that you have an intern they pay a, a portion of that uh, uh wage uh so we've got a lot of uh, good help and we've got uh ball state uh david letterman came from ball state they have an amazing tcom uh department so we're going to have some real good youtube uh, content. We've got some some of those kids coming out as well. Man, this is awesome. This makes me really look forward to coming out for uh, your field day, which yeah. uh, you guys still June, doing your big field day? Yes, June 26th. And just a second to promote that. So we've got all these projects. We're going to get some buses and we'll drive around and you'll see these different crops growing together and all this stuff. And then you're going to speak. I think Kate's going to speak. Kate Crosby, um, that'll be that'll be. Lit, I've got man. a golf course out of my house, so we'll uh, have some cold barley pops out there and play a little golf. And then we've got two uh, awesome bands. One guy's a local guy named Jake Hendershaw. He was on The Voice. And then last year we had the Flying Buffaloes. They're coming back out. They are amazing. They're like the Doobie Brothers got in a time machine and came out, and they just they're just freaking amazing. And uh, we've played till one or two in the morning out in front of a barn, like amphitheater with a pond. And, and it's it's kind of like a it's a poor man's Woodstock. Man, I didn't even know what I was getting <laughs> into. What, how did, if people wanted to be a part of your field day, how would they how would they do that? Um, I, I'll be promoting it on social media, but there's there's no cost. Um, we'll have a food truck or we might even provide our own food. You just show up and, uh, you know, kind of a 
the BYOB. And, uh, and what is a field day for people that aren't from the farming ag background? They've never been to a field day. What is it? Well, most field days, Vance, are paid for by corporations and they kind of push their product and have your agronomist tell you, you know, say, uh, you know, we need to do this, this and this. And everyone kind of comes up and but our field day is more of a uh, just a networking deal. So uh, like like I told you before, I want you to just speak whatever you want to speak. And uh, it's kind of more of an inspirational thing. And, and we've got a lot of projects on the farm that are different. They're not the status quo. They are not the best management practice. They are, let's do this and figure it out and share it. So it's more of an idea tank. Last year we had uh, Zach from Rabbit Tractors. He had his uh, small autonomous tractors out there going around. And uh, we'll have a lot of things that are hopefully – uh, you know, futuristic. Man, this sounds great. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and talk my uh, brother into coming with me, and Kate will be there. Yes. It'll be a good time, man. Well, Jason, is your brother younger or older? My, he's he yeah. is two years older. Okay, okay, dude. Thank you so much for coming on Saturday morning uh, doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, if people want to find you on Twitter, where, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, Jason Mock One. That's Mock M A U C K, but Mock. Uh, Jason Mock one and, and Google search constant canopy or Jason Mock. And you'll, we've got 250 videos on YouTube. Now of me out in the field, you know, explaining what I do. Well, brother, we will talk before this, but, uh, we're, let's record what we do at, at your field days and let's throw it up on the podcast. So anybody that can't make it, um, gets to see and hear about it. Okay. All right. Thanks brother. Yep. We'll see you.